Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is World's Greatest Con. I'm Brian Brushwood. What makes people lie? Why would any of us willingly deceive somebody? Do we do it for panic, greed, sometimes, sure? But not every lie has a clean-cut motivation. Sometimes things are messier. So let's ask another question. What is a lie? A lot of people think it's saying the opposite of the truth. I have a hand behind my back and I have three fingers held out. And I tell you I have anything other than three, then I'm lying. But am I lying? Maybe I am. Or maybe I legitimately meant to put up another number and accidentally put up three. Or maybe I got confused with another number and misspoke. Would that be a lie? We spend a lot of time in our modern culture talking about truth and facts. But the reality is that these things are far more complicated than a cable news chiron would lead you to believe. Think about the stories we've told so far in this season. Do you think Dan Enright has a different version of the story of 21 than we told? Of course he does. And I bet you'd hear a lot more complicated version of the story from Michael Larson when we talk about the Press Your Luck scandal. Carrie Ketchum on Super Password, the Ingram gang from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? All of them are going to have stories different from the ones we've told. Now, we've done our due diligence on all of these stories and even tried to represent the points of view of these guys. But if they told you something different, against all the evidence that we could find, would that make them liars? Let's flip it. If you believe them, would it make me the liar? The reality is that the truth of these stories will always be an amalgamation of perspectives bolstered with whatever physical evidence can back it up. A lie is simply the one you don't believe and the truth is the one you settle on. Some situations are more complicated than others. For example, what if you had three people each tell the same story in their own words? And what if none of the three versions matched? On September 22, 2008, in Television City Studios, a game show taped just like it had for over three decades. 
It's an explosion of American populism, a ray of televised sunshine with a cradle-to-grave audience that is still on the air in the same time slot today. In fact, I bet you can even guess it, or at least get closest without going over. The ears of our great nation are about to hear Angela Fuentes. Come on down. You're the next contestant. The Price is Right. On September 22nd, something very, very special happens at the very end of the show. It would have been an 18-foot trailer. She might have been on it. But it was only a 17-foot That's Terry Neese, and he just made a very specific bid on the final showcase showdown. Very exact bid. Good luck. And for the first time in the history of the daytime version of this legendary show, He is exactly right, down to the final dollar. Price is Right, which is famously filmed live to tape in order to avoid any kind of editing, they go to commercial. And they don't restart production for another 10 minutes. Or was it 45 minutes? Or is it 25 minutes? That depends who you ask. And that's just the beginning of the inconsistencies. What the staff of The Price is Right believes is that they just got robbed. A longtime producer who had just been fired was getting his revenge. Did he organize this? Maybe somebody sympathetic to him? Did they tip off the contestant? Hell, maybe somebody tipped off one of the superfans in the crowds. One of those superfans is sitting right next to the man who made the perfect bid. This fan has been to the show over 30 times. But from the superfan's perspective, he wouldn't need to be tipped off. He's an obsessive person about this stuff. He knows all of the prices by heart. He claims he added up everything in his head all by himself and that he was the one that shouted out the answer. But neither the fired producer nor the superfan won any money. That would be the man who made the perfect bid. A former weatherman. Also a former Las Vegas casino security official who eventually learns how to count cards. He has no idea this backstage drama is even happening. He doesn't know anything about the deposed producer. He says he barely even knows the super fan outside of some idle chatter while they were waiting in line together. And he most certainly didn't need any help on that perfect bid. He says the exact five-digit number popped into his head like magic. He's just that lucky. Or maybe it wasn't any one of these three people. Maybe it's a combination of everyone. Maybe a hostile work environment backstage, a ringer in the crowd, and a man who recognizes where the wind is blowing worked together to make this happen. What we know for sure is that there is a lot of coverage about this story from all the first-person perspectives of everybody around it. Podcast interviews, feature articles, autobiographies, documentaries, all of them about one relatively minor moment in game show history. And none of them agree entirely on the facts. We're about to hear from a lot of people. Our job is to find out who's lying, why are they lying, and if they even believe they're lying at all. Cons don't fool us because we're stupid. They fool us because we're human. It's a genuine whodunit for our season finale of the world's greatest con.
World's Greatest Con is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you heard season one of this podcast, you know that I very openly and honestly talked about the loss of my brother. Probably not a surprise that I started getting therapy afterwards. That's part of the reason I felt comfortable talking to you guys about it. If you're feeling disconnected, if you're feeling sad, lonely, and who isn't in this weird time that the whole world caught fire, do something about it. Get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours by going to betterhelp.com slash WGC. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you go there, you'll join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their own mental health with the help of an experienced professional. The service is available worldwide. No matter where you are, you get to be matched with somebody who can help make you the best version of yourself. You log into your account anytime, send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So do me a favor. Take care of yourself. Go to BetterHelp.com slash WGC. You'll get 10% off your first month, and you'll be taking care of my favorite listener. Present The Price is Right, the exciting game of bidding, buying, and bargaining with your host, Bill Cullen. The Price is Right first aired on TV as contemporary to 21 back in 1956. It goes off the air with the rest of the genre after the scandals, but is eventually rebooted as a morning game show in 1972. This version is hosted, as it would be for the next 35 years, by the legend Bob Barker. Barker is a natural at what they call audience participation shows. It's actually where he got his start. He hosted radio programs paid for by the electric company and would give away electric appliances. His gift throughout his whole career was with people. How to connect with them, how to talk to them, how to get them excited. Well, you didn't miss a thing. Because you're not going to look in our audience for a man, you're going out and look on the streets of Hollywood. (laughs) The Price is Right was then and is now all about the people. Say no show for eggheads who memorized a bunch of library books. This is for workaday families, the moms who clip coupons, the dads who balance the family checkbooks. The best players on The Price is Right have vanishingly little strategy to memorize, but instead they're just rewarded for simply knowing what things cost. In other words, living a normal life. The show's gone through many iterations, but the version we're talking about is one where there are three phases repeated twice throughout the show. $1,300 for Brian. What for Jose? $9.99. Starts with a very simple game, one bid. Regular Joes are called out of the audience. They're put on contestant row. Together, they all see the same product, sometimes big, sometimes small. They all put in one bid and the closest without going over wins a chance to move on to the next round. 
Next round, the pricing you game. You are going to play Polinko for a chance to win up to $1 million. This is where all the fun stuff happens. Cliffhanger, Plinko, games like any number. All of these mini games have wacky concepts and all of them feature a litany of bigger prizes that rely on players knowing their worth. Anyone who makes it to a pricing game, whether they win or lose, has a chance to spin the big wheel. Here comes and get a chance to advance to the big show, the Showcase Showdown. This is where two players are faced with an even greater array of prizes. Laid out in front of each of them, the two contestants vie to guess what the grand total is. The closest, without going over, wins. And if you guess close enough, you win both. Showcase is $89,739. You win both showcases. Many of these games, the methods by which they're developed, the contours and flavor of the show, they were all the product of one man, Roger Dobkowitz. And of course, I wasn't there, so I can't, I don't really know what happened backstage. Let's just say the contestant, let's just say the contestant did cheat. Let's say the contestant had a piece of paper in front of him with the price on it that somebody slipped him during the show. What were they going to do? Were they going to, if they found that out, were they going to disqualify him and kick him off the show? I mean, then you have a show with only one showcase contestant. I would have just continued on. These are clips from a radio program called Stu's Show, hosted by Stu Showstack. Dobkowitz is a lifer. He graduates San Francisco State University with a degree in television. He writes his dissertation on the history of game shows. He mails the 120-page document to game show producers in New York and L.A. He gets a callback from the head of CBS Daytime, who's very impressed, and tells Dobkowitz he'd love to make him an executive at the network. But he needs some real-world experience first. So he puts in a word at legendary game show producer Mark Goodson in New York. Dobkowitz gets in his VW bug and drives from L.A. all the way to New York City, only stopping to sleep and cook hard-boiled eggs on a hot plate. He eventually gets to the Big Apple and he wows Goodson. Goodson asks when Dobkowitz is going to fly back to California. Dobkowitz tells him, actually, I'm going to be driving back. Now even more impressed by the moxie he's got, Goodson hires him within 24 hours, telling him to drive back to L.A. because he's going to be working on the reboot of The Price is Right. And that's exactly what Dobkowitz did from 1972 until the day he was let go in July of 2008. The man behind his exit some 20-something executive by the name of Mike Richards. Wait, hold on. Mike Richards, that, that sounds familiar, right? Kind of like infamous? Heard any 
big Jeopardy news lately? In the most recent twist, less than two weeks after Sony Pictures Television revealed that the game show would keep Mike Richards on as executive producer, he has been let go. Initially chosen to succeed the late, great Alex Trebek as host of the long-running quiz show, Richards bowed out from that role when anti-Semitic, misogynistic, and racist jokes that he told on a podcast in the mid-2010s resurfaced online. Yes. In the wake of Richards- Over a decade before the controversy, where he was briefly the successor to the great Alex Trebek on Jeopardy, Mike Richards was installed by Price's Rights production company, Fremantle Media, to help shepherd the transition from Bob Barker. He was actually a finalist for hosting that job, too, before the top brass settled on stand-up comic and television star Drew Carey, who, by the way, is awesome. Richards immediately begins cleaning house. He fires the longtime announcer and eventually becomes at odds with Dobkowitz. Here's what Dobkowitz said about his parting with the show a year after it happened. I felt like the proverbial man who was married to a beautiful wife for 30 years. He provides them, he provides his family with, you know, a nice house. And they raise three wonderful kids. And they go off to college, you know, they go to college and... And then finally the last kid moves out of the house and there's an empty nest. And the wife comes up to the husband and says, you know, honey, I have really been happy with you. I, I, I've just stayed together because of the kids and I want a divorce. That's how I felt. Now, while he doesn't name Richards, subsequent interviews have made it pretty clear that he was the face of a new era at Price. A new era that didn't have room for, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, voices like Dobkowitz's. Um, I could have still been there if I had given given in to all that. But as, as I, I like to say, you know, I was the producer of the show. If I had given in to all those things and just did what they tell me to do, I would no longer have been a producer. I would have been a production assistant with a fancy title. We have a motive. Man just lost the only job he ever had. He was a personal friend to Bob Barker. His fingerprints were all over the show. So what happens when he's gone? If he really wanted revenge on the guy messing up his show, how could he stir the pot? Okay, let's get in the weeds a little here. Price is Right has a fixed prize budget. Since the show pays out of pocket for prizes, they have to stay under that budget. That means if the contestants go on a run winning car after car after car, the show needs to balance the scales. They do this by putting in some of the games with a lower win rate. Dobkowitz himself said the year before he was let go, he had to make up for a $400,000 shortfall in the budget. So what if, knowing all that, he really, really wanted to screw over the new guy? The day of the perfect bid, Price is Right was taking an absolute beating. One contestant had already won a car. Another won $2,000 cash. Then our eventual big winner, Terry, gets a perfect bid on a big green egg smoker before the improbable finale. This is why the show stopped for 45 minutes before the big reveal. The behind the scenes crew is convinced something is wrong. If there's one person with the most bad blood, it's Dobkowitz. There was a producer on the show my first year that had been there 35 years. Right. Was, he'd been there his whole television career. It was his first job out of college. This is Drew Carey on The Kevin Pollack Show. 
and uh, then he wasn't there my second year of the show. And his fan group, they didn't blame me for, getting, for him not being there, but we thought somebody from the staff had, was also mad about this and was cooperating with the fan group and was like, just to f*** the show over, gave the guy the price of the showcase. So we have a motive and we have the result. Something that an ex-producer would know more than anybody could hurt the production. Possibly to the point of permanently damaging the show. I think I'm fucked. Here's Drew Carey spelling out what this might have meant. Right, you're out of a job. I think I'm out of a job. You think they're shutting down the show? I think I'm, I think they're shutting down the and show. And this is why Carey ends the show, not with a jubilant celebration of television history, but the relatively curt reveal of... Yeah, the trailer, jukebox, bid $23,743. Actual retail price, $23,743. You got it right on the nose. <laughs> But here's my problem. How? Price is Right is very random. Even if every contestant had a psychic mind meld with Dobkowitz, it still wouldn't guarantee that the right people were selected to play, or that the corresponding games would be unveiled, or that they'd score right on the showcase wheel. It all just feels like sour grapes from the new crew. Unless there was a ringer in the crowd. Remember, another populist element of Price is Right is that the audience is encouraged to yell their guesses at every contestant. What if there was somebody in the crowd that knew every price of every item? What if he didn't even need inside info to pull this off? What if this guy, Theodore Slauson, is a fan? like a massive, obsessive fan of The Price is Right. From the colors to the music, the prizes, the models, there's something visceral that attracts a rabid fan base. Theodore loved it all, but he's most attracted to the math elements. So one week I got into like watching Prices Rights from like 1973. The same refrigerator freezer is on four different episodes that I watched and it was $789 all four times. I'm like, well, see, there it is. There's proof. It was way back in the beginning. It was the same, you know, same stuff over and over. That is a clip from The Perfect Bid, the contestant who knew too much a 2017 documentary about all of this, but particularly centering around Theodore. He's got a natural math mind, so much so that he went on to professionally craft math problems for standardized tests. He appreciates the concept of memorization, quick arithmetic, the kind of things that dominate the show. The first time Theodore waits in line to be a contestant, he wore a shirt that read, I'm here to kiss Holly, his favorite prize model. But mostly, Theodore knew that The Price is Right reuses prizes. Prizes that happen to retain the exact same price. He'd later code not one, but two computer programs so he could do this automatically and randomly at his leisure. Theodore got into the audience of Price is Right over 30 times before the fateful perfect bid. One time he was so conspicuous, screaming out the perfect answer, that he was singled out by Bob Barker himself. What's your name? 
Theodore, the actual retail price is $12.50. Theodore is a bidder, isn't he? Eventually, Theodore makes it on stage. Guess is perfectly on one bid, but has the misfortune of getting one of the most random pricing games, Punch a Bunch. He wins $1,000, a few prizes, and then washes out at the big showcase wheel. And that's that. After dozens of trips to get on the show, that was his one shot. On the upside, he does get a kiss from Holly. Strangely, though, completing this quest doesn't stop Theodore from continuing to attend tapings. Despite the fact that, based on the rules of the game, he couldn't compete again, he would go with friends and tell them he'd help. Sometimes he'd make friends with people in line, tell these strangers that he'd help them once they get on stage. And I totally get that. When you're a fan of something, the chance to share that fandom, to be somebody's support group, it's awesome. It's important to note that nothing Theodore does is against any of the rules. In fact, the only rule on Price is Right when it comes to knowing prices is that you can't bring a physical list of prices into the studio. But who needs a list when you've got Theodore? According to him, one stranger he met in line eventually made it all the way to the final showcase. He says he shouted the exact right answer, but she didn't listen. Then the rules changed. And what was once a lifetime ban after appearing on the show becomes a 10-year moratorium. And so, since it's been a decade since his last appearance, Ted starts lining up again, hoping to get his shot. Which brings us back to September 22nd, 2008. Theodore is third in line for taping. Numbers four and five are Terry Nice. And his wife. They sound familiar? Being early in line means yes, you have plenty of time to quiz each other on prices. But it also means that you're going to sit closer to the stage. And according to Theodore, it's Terry's wife that has the greater aptitude for price recall. And here's something else that bears mentioning. At this point, we're about a year into the tenure of Drew Carey. And that has some fans really really annoyed. Longtime fans, people who liked it the way it used to be. Fans that also knew that Roger Dobkowitz had been recently fired. Terry gets selected by the producers to play, and he makes his way to contestants row. He gets the price of the big green egg smoker exactly right. So at this point, would Theodore be what, a mole for Dobkowitz? Like, does he have insider knowledge? I mean, it's possible, but overly complicated in my book. Why would Dobkowitz have to give Theodore the prices that he's already been guessing correctly for literally decades? I don't know about you, but I'm going to cross Dobkowitz off the suspect list. So did Theodore give Terry the perfect bid? It makes sense since Theodore has already done it before. The exact right showcase amount... That makes sense, except for one little detail. Terry vehemently denies any of that happened. According to Terry, he couldn't have gotten those details from Theodore because Terry is hard of hearing. 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of World's Greatest Con is brought to you by our friends over at ExpressVPN, the favorite VPN of all of my hacker friends. They won't shut up about how fast it is, about how they're in 94 different countries, about how they keep your data safe, private, and secure. And we're not just talking about what you transmit. We're talking about what sites you visit, even the geolocation of where you seem to be from. If you're out on the road and you want to watch programming that you're entitled to here in America, you could VPN right back home as if you tunneled straight back to the good old US of A. And let me tell you, that matters when your favorite show is in a country that you don't happen to be in. For example, a friend of mine said that recently, Hacking the System, the National Geographic show that I did years ago, happens to be available on Disney Plus in Japan. I wanted so bad to hop on an airplane, fly out to Japan and watch that show. But I'm here in the USA. If only I could have tunneled there very, very quickly and relived all 12 episodes of that incredible show. That would be amazing. Look, the important thing is that a VPN protects where you go, where you're coming from, and what you're up to. Your privacy is your business. So head on over to expressvpn.com slash WGC. Keep us in business and get three extra months free when you sign up. That's expressvpn.com slash WGC. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash WGC for world's greatest con, your privacy, your business, be anywhere, do anything, but not anything, do, do anything legal or, uh, and, and if you can, nice, be nice to expressvpn.com slash WGC. says not so fast because tomorrow morning rush hour might be a little shaky a little dicey we will have some fog in the morning to contend with but after the fog clears out we are in store for some sunshine you'll want to keep that in mind the fog you might want to add a little extra time to your driving tomorrow morning let's check the current conditions as we take a trip over to Peachtree this evening right now we do have cloudy skies the temperature 46 degrees. that's terry back when he was the weatherman for wgnx in atlanta georgia 
He had a distinguished career starting in Springfield, Missouri and ending up in Las Vegas, Nevada. But he really found his groove while he was in the Peach State, earning himself multiple news Emmys during his time there. According to Terry, that's where he found himself trapped. He didn't love living in Atlanta. The way TV news works, the only promotions you're going to get from there would be to places he would like even less, like Chicago or New York. So he quit. He and his wife moved back to Las Vegas. Terry knows systems and patterns. It's a stock and trade of being a weatherman. So he gets a job in the business that made the town in the desert famous, gambling. He finds himself working security for Circus Circus. Sits in a back room, watches monitors, looking for card counters. Patterns, that's all that matters. In the same way he can spot pressure systems that'll cause rain and cold, he can spot the men and women who sought to exploit imperfections of the dealers. Watch the tables they sat at, the seats they chose, the way they bid. He got pretty good at picking them out, too. So much so that he got a little bit curious. I mean, if identifying a card counter was easy, how hard would it be to, you know... Count cards. So he does. And he gets good at that too. Here's the weird thing about counting cards at Blackjack. It's not against the rules. And there's some number of casinos that really want you to try. Because being bad at counting cards is good for the casino. But if you're good at counting cards, you might get a tap on the shoulder and a gentle request that perhaps your style of play isn't a match for their casino. AKA, you just got busted, you're now banned. Terry used to be the guy to spot the counters and have them banned. Now he is a counter and he is banned. It's at this point that Terry and his wife find a new obsession. The price is right. Like many other fans, they figure out that the prizes are recycled and they start keeping track. They quiz each other. Eventually, they make the drive all the way down to Burbank to play the big game themselves. Which brings us back to September 22nd. Somebody got the price right on the nose and wins an extra $500 cash right here. I don't even know who it is. I can't imagine. The person that got the price right on the nose is the one that bid... 11.75. Terry gets the perfect bid on the big green egg, but bombs out on the pricing game switch. According to him, it's because he didn't realize there were two bikes and was confused on exactly how expensive a terabyte of memory would cost. Some people believe that the reason why is that the stage for Switch was very far from where his wife and Theodore were sitting. Still, Terry locks out, gets the highest score on the wheel, puts him in the final showcase. So, if Terry, the weatherman turned card counter, detective turned card counter, didn't get the numbers from Theodore, where did they come from? Because they're very specific numbers. The first showcase was a karaoke machine, a pool table, and a travel trailer. She passed it, and it was my bid. 
I thought Rich Fields said it was a 19-foot camper, so I applied a little more than 1,000 per foot rule, plus 3,000 for the pool table and 1,000 for the karaoke machine, putting me in the neighborhood of 23,000. Even Sharon must have been confused on the length of the camper because she asked how big it was before passing the showcase to me. Now, my mental figure of 23,000 wasn't making me feel very confident, so I looked at Linda sitting in the audience. She held up two fingers, then three fingers, and I knew I was close. When Drew asked me for my bid, I said 23,743. It rolled out off my tongue like gum from a gumball machine. That's from Terry's self-authored book about his entire situation, Cause and Effects. Unfortunately, there's no audiobook, so we had to make our own version. According to Terry, they were pretty much random. He knew the collection of prizes would add up to about $23,000, but didn't know the last three digits. So he went with numbers he didn't know. A number he and his wife knew by heart because it was a pin code they'd use for various purposes. 743. Stunned, numb, and carrying a cue card along with other paperwork, we were walking toward the Fairfax Avenue exit of the CBS studios when Linda said, You know you just gave out our security code on national television, you dumbass. My response was a simplistic, naive, and generally stupid, Huh? Nobody will ever figure that out. We were married on the 7th of April, 7th day, 4th month i.e. 7-4. Linda was born in March, the third month of the year, thus 7-4-3. The pattern savant who spent hours quizzing himself on prices just randomly pulled three numbers out of a hat and they randomly wound up being the exact three numbers that completed the only perfect bid in Prices Right history. Ever since the show aired and the allegations flew, every now and then I wish she'd been born in February and I would have been a dollar off. All right, now some of you might have your spider senses tingling on this. We're going to interrogate Terry's logic here. You could be forgiven if at this moment you believe he's lying. He's lying that he came up with 23,000 all by himself. He's lying that he came up with 743 randomly. After all, who has a three-digit PIN code? Like, what thing on earth requires a three-digit PIN code? Not a phone, not a home security system, not any computer that has a keyboard, maybe a briefcase. But beyond that, for the life of me, I can't think of any system or any device that requires a three-digit code to open. And if you want to remember a code with a date you'll never forget, like your wedding anniversary, wouldn't you just List it the way you say it, April 7th or 4-7. Now, if Terry was from London, he might say 7 April like they do over there, but he's not British. He's from Pennsylvania. Also, why would you use only your wife's birth month? Maybe her birthday would complete a four-digit code. Oh, wait, that would be weird because the way the first date is listed, you'd put the day before the month. Now, it's easy to get cynical, it's easy to pick through things, but let's really steel man this argument. I mean, passwords are very personal and idiosyncratic. In fact, the weirder you formulate your password could make it more secure. Yeah, sure, maybe it's just a little weird. 
just seems like a long way to go when there's a much more likely solution, which is that Terry simply refuses to admit that Theodore gave him the answer. So let's ask the question we started with again. What makes people lie? Okay, so even if you don't believe Terry, it's possible, if not likely, that this is his truth. He's not lying, he's just wrong. We could search for motivations. Maybe in that moment he was spooked by standards and practices, which immediately grilled him after he won. Maybe he didn't want to share any of the spotlight with Theodore. And once you say something, it's hard to take it back. Maybe the entire situation is so chaotic that the only recollection he has is what he pieced together after the fact. In fact, here he is in his own words talking about what the moments after the show were like. Behind CBS Studios is the Hollywood Farmer's Market, which has some really nice restaurants. I should mention by this time we were both numb from all the weirdness, in addition to feeling slightly more than a little hungry. We walked to the Italian restaurant and sat down. For the next hour, we stared at each other blankly, not saying a word. No smiles, no frowns, just a blank kind of in-shock stare. Every now and then, without any rhyme or reason, we'd break out laughing. I'm sure everyone in the restaurant thought we were on leave from the asylum and the white coats would be there to pick us up any minute. Quite frankly, I expected the white coats too. What is a lie. Before I became a magician, I was convinced that maybe I didn't remember everything that happened in my life, but what I did remember did happen. And yet year after year on tour, as people tried to describe back to me my own stage show that they had seen only an hour beforehand, details got conflated, stories got simplified, and a narrative emerged that didn't happen to line up with what was physically possible. And we see this time and time again. One of the best witnessed accidents in all of aviation history occurred in 1952 at the Farnborough Air Show in England. A de Havilland 110 fighter jet was in the middle of performing a supersonic maneuver, trying to thrill the crowd with a giant sonic boom. Then suddenly without warning, the plane began to break apart. Falling debris killed 30 people and injured dozens more. They had a bit of evidence. They had the wreckage. They had photographs. But the accident itself was witnessed by 100,000 people, all of them horrified, all of them wanting to help. These aren't just any bystanders. These are aviation enthusiasts, people who know their stuff. So the authorities asked for statements from everybody, and they got a tremendous response. Eventually, researchers were able to solve the case by performing wing stress tests performed by the aircraft manufacturer. Meanwhile, those thousands of eyewitness accounts, those carefully written letters, those tedious, precise reconstructions of what these eyewitnesses saw, out of the thousands of responses from the 100,000 people who saw it live, quote, there was only one letter which was of some use, and there were fewer than a half dozen people who captured to some extent the true picture of events. Most witnesses got the split-second time sequence of disintegration backwards. They filled in bits with imagination. They preferred their theories 
to the factual reports. These are people who cared, who were doing their best to tell the truth as they remembered it. And I have a hard time calling them liars. Especially given the work of people like Elizabeth Loftus, who ran experiments to plant false memories. One of her undergraduate students once planted a false memory in his own little brother, five-year-old named Chris. He handed him five different stories of things that really happened and a sixth story of something that didn't happen. A story about the time he got lost at the mall and a nice old lady found him. After a little bit of rehearsal and asking for details about it, it was eventually revealed to Chris that one of these stories was fake. When Chris was asked which one is the fake story, he picked a real event that happened to him rather than believe that he never got lost at the mall when he was five. Memory is a lousy videotape, and that's just as it should be. Imagine the horror of sifting through a soup of all accurate memories going back to the day that you were born. We collapse things, we make simple narratives, and then we reconstruct them when we need to. Is it too much to believe that in all of that hype and hubbub and the chaos and the lights, that Terry would cling to one simple narrative? I don't think that makes him a liar. Might make him factually inaccurate. Might make him confused. But I don't think he's a liar. I don't think any of our characters in this story are liars. But that doesn't mean we can't piece together what we think happened. While Terry denies that he knew Theodore was a ringer and adamantly denies that he got the exact right answer from him, he does admit that he saw his wife signaling numbers to him using her fingers. Which brings us to our final, and I'll admit for my money, the most likely scenario that Terry, his wife, and Theodore are the group who works together. Theodore maintains that he has guessed the exact showcase cost not once but twice. Once to a woman who did not listen, and again to Terry and his wife. Let's go back to the exact moments before Terry makes that final bid. It would have been an 18-foot trailer. She might have bid on it. But it was only a 17 23743 The entire room is shouting. There's a cacophony of a million voices. And meanwhile, silently, Theodore is adding up the numbers. I told Linda what it was. And I said, let me do it again. And I added it up again in my head. And I said... 23,743, is that what I said before? And she said, yes. And see him kind of mouthing numbers and looking at us, and he says... 23,743. Wow. Terry says he did see his wife signaling to him, but that the numbers he saw were two and three, 23. This only confirmed to Terry what he already knew, that it was around $23,000. Let's pause, because we have two stories that are very, very close. Theodore's and Terry's. This is the moment they diverge. Terry insists he only got 23 from his wife. Theodore insists he said the exact right number not once but twice to the person communicating with Terry. Let's play a little game of speculation. Let's say that Terry's wife did not only signal two and three. Let's assume she kept going. 
Let's say it was two, three, seven, four, three. That's not a hard reach, right? If that happened, then everything that follows makes total sense. Terry trusted a known pattern, his wife. Theodore did what he's done dozens of times, helped somebody he met in line. Furthermore, he's doing again what he says he's already done once, given the exact right answer to a final showcase showdown. Except for those final three hand signals, those two stories are identical. So if Theodore's story is right, why is Terry fudging? Why not come out and say it? Why not just admit you got help from a guy named Theodore? Why invent the story about the pin? Why go out of your way to show journalists your marriage certificate and your wife's passport? I'll say this. If I was in Terry's shoes, and if I wanted to have a credible story for why I pulled those numbers out of quote-unquote, nowhere, I'd probably do it a lot like Terry did. In magic circles, we rely a lot on something called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. The idea is simple. Let's say you want to do a card trick where somebody picks a card, somebody else picks another card, and then you eventually find both of them. But what if by accident, Both people pick the exact same card. In that case, you shut your mouth and you take a bow. This is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. Instead of drawing a bullseye and then firing right in the middle, you shoot first and then decide where the target was. If I was Terry, if I was worried, about being in trouble for getting answers from somebody in the audience. If I knew I was part of television history, I would be very, very tempted to construct a very airtight story. In theory, after going through all of this, I might look at all those numbers and figure out what they link to in my life. I might figure out that seven and four It's just a transposed version of my anniversary. Three, that happens to be the month my wife was born. Then you could pour on the social proof by saying this exact combination was in your head because it's your shared pin. Go on and on about how your wife was so mad about you giving away your secret three-digit pin code in the aftermath of the show that you simply had to change all of it. That's why none of your pins match it now. But of course, we don't know. Although I do know that I do not have a single pin code that is three digits long. All we have are the conflicting words of three potential co-conspirators. And in a world without certainty, you have to be the judge. Which of these sounds the most true to you? The answer, of course, is at the heart of all the stories that we've told this season. The folks who sought to exploit the systems for fame and money, who did it with the lights turned up real bright and cameras focused right on them. 
Because when it comes to the world of game shows, whether you're the power player or the nobody, whether you're stealing honor or winning at fair and square, these are the stories that make for the world's greatest cons. This episode of World's Greatest Con was written by Justin Robert Young and me, Brian Brushwood, your humble host. Production and research by Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Credit to Stu's show with Stu Showstack, the contestant who knew too much, and Cause and Effects by Terry Neese, which were our first-hand points of view of the story. Also, the contestant who outsmarted The Price is Right by Chris Jones and Esquire, which along with other contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archived video made for the bulk of our research. Additional research was provided by Rachel Oppenheimer. Of course, you all have questions and we want to answer all of them at the end of the season. So get yours in right now by hitting us up at worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. In the next episode of World's Greatest Con... You stand in the spotlight. It's all about your questions and our answers. We'll see you then. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio. 